Chapter Six of The Lust of Hate by Guy Newell Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: The Salvages. For some minutes we lay upon the bottom of the upturned boat, too exhausted to speak. I still held the unconscious form of little Esther Bailey in my arms and protected her as well as I was able from the marauding seas though the waves about us upheld many evidences of the terrible catastrophe such as gratings broken spars portions of boat gear still to my astonishment i could discover no signs of any bodies once however i was successful in obtaining possession of something which i knew would be worth its weight in gold to us it was an oar part of the equipment of one of the quarter-boats i imagined half the blade was missing but with what remained it would still be possible for us to propel the boat on which we had taken refuge what a terrible position was ours lodged on the bottom of the overturned lifeboat icy seas breaking upon us every few seconds the knowledge of our gallant ship with all our friends aboard lying fathoms deep below the surface of the waves and the remembrance of the same fate that might be ours at any moment no possible notion of where we were no provisions or means of sustaining life and but a small chance of being picked up by any passing boat it was miss maybourne who spoke first and as usual her conversation was not about herself mr rexford she said and her teeth chattered as she spoke at any risk something must be done for that poor child you hold in your arms she will die else do you think we could manage to get her up further on to the boat and try to chafe her back to consciousness by all means let us try i answered though i fear it will prove a difficult matter she seems very far gone poor little mite with the utmost care i clambered further up the boat till i sat with my burden astride the keel in the darkness we could scarcely see each other but once the child was placed between us we set to work rubbing her face and hands and trying by every means in our power to restore consciousness suddenly a great thought occurred to me I remember the flask I had taken from the cabin where I had found the clothes, and in an instant had dived my hand into my pocket in search of it, almost trembling with fear lest by any chance it should have slipped out when I had dived overboard. But to my delight it was still there. I had pulled it out and unscrewed the stopper before anyone could have counted a dozen, taking the precaution to taste it in order to see that it was right before I handed it to Miss Maybourne. It was filled with the finest French brandy having discovered this i bade her take a good drink at it when she had done i put it to the child's mouth and forced a small quantity between her lips surely you are going to drink some yourself said my companion as she saw me screw on the top and replace it in my pocket but i was not going to do anything of the sort i did not need it so vitally as my charges and i knew that there was not enough in the bottle to justify me in wasting even a drop I explained this and asked her if she felt any warmer. Much warmer, she answered, and I think Esther here feels better too. Let us chafe her hands again. We did so, and in a few moments had the satisfaction of hearing the poor mite utter a little moan. In less than an hour she was conscious once more, but so weak that it seemed that first breath of wind that came our way would blow the life out of her tiny body. Poor little soul! if it was such a terrible experience for us what must it have been for her 
what length of time elapsed from the time of our leaving the boat before daylight came to cheer us i cannot say but cramped up as we were the darkness seemed to last for centuries for periods of something like half an hour at a time we sat without speaking thinking of all that had happened since darkness had fallen the night before and remembering the rush and agony of those last few dreadful minutes on board and the awful fact that all those whom we had seen so well and strong only a few hours before were now cold and lifeless for ever twice i took out my flask and insisted on miss mabel and the child swallowing a portion of the spirit had i not brought that with me i really believed neither of them would have seen another sunrise suddenly miss mabel turned to me listen mr rexford she cried what is that booming noise is it thunder i did as she commanded For some moments could hear nothing save the splashing of the waves upon the boat's planks then a dull sullen noise reached my ear that might very well have been mistaken for the booming of thunder at a great distance thunder it certainly was but not of the kind my companion imagined it was the thunder of surf and that being so i knew there must be land at no great distance from us i told her my conjecture and then we set ourselves to wait with what patience we could command for daylight what a strange and i might almost say weird dawn that was it was like the beginning of a new life under strangely altered conditions the first shafts of light found us still clinging to the keel of the overturned boat gazing hopelessly about us when it was light enough to discern our features we two elder ones looked at each other and were horrified to observe the change which the terrible sufferings of the night had wrought in our countenances miss maybourne's face was white and drawn and she looked years older than her real age i could see by the way she glanced at me that i was also changed the poor little girl esther hardly noticed either of us but lay curled up as close as possible to her sister in misfortune as the light widened the breeze which had been just perceptible all night died away and the sea became as calm as a mill pond i looked about me for something to explain the noise of the breakers we had heard but at first i could see nothing when however i turned my head to the west i almost shouted in my surprise for scarcely a mile distant from us was a comparatively large island surrounded by three or four reef-like smaller ones on the larger island a peak rose ragged and rough to the height of something like five hundred feet and upon the shore on all sides i could plainly discern the surf breaking upon the rocks as soon as i saw it i turned excitedly to miss maybourne we're saved i cried pointing in the direction of the island look look there as she turned round on the boat as well as she was able and she saw the land she stared at it for some moments in silence then with a cry thank god she dropped her head onto her hands and i could only see her shoulders shaken by convulsive sobs i did my best to console her but she soon recovered of her own accord and addressed herself to me again these must be the salvage islands of which the captain was speaking at dinner last night she said how can we reach the shore whatever happens we must not drift past them have no fear i answered i will not let that happen come what may so saying i shifted my position to get a better purchase of the water and then using the broken oar began to paddle in the direction of the biggest island it was terribly hard work and a very few moments showed me that after all the horrors of the night i was as weak as a kitten but my patience and perseverance at last got the boat's head round 
and began to lessen the distance that separated us. At the end of nearly half an hour, we were within a hundred yards of the shore. By this time, I had decided on a landing place. It was a little bit of open sandy beach, perhaps sixty yards long, without rocks and boasting less surf than any other part of the island I could see. In addition to these advantages, it was nearer, and I noted in that particular side of the island, looked more sheltered than the others. Towards this haven of refuge, I accordingly made my way, hoping that I should not find any unexpected danger lurking there, when I should be too close in to be able to get out again. It was most necessary for every reason that we should save the boat from damage, or if the worst came, to strike out on our own account for the Canary Islands. That the rocks we were now making were the salvage group, as Miss Mayborn had said. I had no doubt in my own mind, though how the skipper came to be steering such a course was more than I could tell. At last we were so close that I could see the sandy bottom quite distinctly only a fathom or so below us. A better landing place no man could have wished for. When we were near enough to make it safe, I slid off the boat into the water, which was just up to my hips, and began to push her in before me. Having grounded her, I took Miss Mayborn in my arms and carried her out of the water upon the beach, and then went back for the child. My heart was so full of gratitude at being on dry land again, and having saved the two lives entrusted to my care, that I could have burst into tears on the least encouragement. Having got my charges safely ashore, I waded into the water again to have a look at the boat, and if possible to discover what had made her capsize. She was so precious to us that I dared not leave her for an instant. To my delight, she looked as sound as the day she had been turned out of the shipwright's yard, and I felt if once I could turn her over, she would carry us as well as any boat ever built. But how to do that, full of water as she was, was a problem. I could not for the life of me solve. Miss Mayborn's wits, however, were sharper than mine, and helped me out of the difficulty. There is a rope in the bows, Mr. Rexford, she cried. Why not drive the oar into the sand? and fasten her to that. And then when the tide goes out, you see it is clearly full now, she will be left high and dry, the water will have run out of her, and then you will be able to do whatever you please to her. It solved the difficulty for me in a very simple fashion, I answered. What a duffer I was not to have thought of that. And the mouse can help the lion sometimes, you see, she replied, with a wan little smile that went to my heart. Having got my party safely ashore, and made my boat fast to the oars, as proposed by Miss Mayborn. The next thing to be done was to discover a suitable spot where we might fix our camp, and then to endeavour to find some sort of food upon which we might sustain our lives until we should be rescued. I explained my intentions to my elder companion, and then leaving them on the beach together, climbed the hillside to explore. On the other sides of the island, the peak rose almost precipitously from the beach and upon the side on which we stood it was in many places pretty stiff climbing. The last, however, to my great delight, on a small plateau some thirty yards long by twenty deep, I discovered a cave that looked as if it would suit my purpose to perfection. It was not a large affair, but quite big enough to hold the woman and the child, even when lying at full length. To add to my satisfaction, the little strip of land outside was covered with a coarse grass, a quantity of which I gathered and spread about the cave to serve as a bed. This, with a few armfuls of dry seaweed, which I knew I should be able to obtain on the beach, 
made an excellent couch. What, however, troubled me more than anything else was the fear that the island might contain no fresh water. But my doubts on that head were soon set at rest. For on the hillside, a little below the plateau on which I had discovered the cave, was a fair-sized pool formed by a hollow in a rock, which when I tasted it I found to contain water. A little brackish, it is true, but still quite drinkable. There was an abundance of fuel everywhere, and if only I could manage to find some shellfish on the rocks, or hit upon some way of catching the fish swimming in the bay, I thought we might manage to keep ourselves alive until we were picked up by some passing boat. Descending to the beach again, I told Miss Maybourne of my discoveries, and then taking poor little Esther in my arms, we set off up the hill towards the cave. On reaching it, I made them as comfortable as I could, and then descended to the shore again in search of food. Leaving the little sandy bay where we had landed, I tramped along as far as some large rock, see a couple of hundred yards or so, to my left hand. As I went, I thought of the strangeness of my position, how inscrutable are the ways of providence. However much I might have hated Bartrand, and had I not met Nicola, I should in all probability never have attempted to revenge myself on him. In that case, I should not have been compelled to fly from England at a moment's notice, and should certainly not have sailed aboard the Fiji princess. Presuming, therefore, that it would all have gone on without me as it had done with me, Miss Maybourne would have been drowned off the coast of Spain, and the Fiji princess would have gone to the bottom and nobody have been left to tell the tale. It's a curious thought, and one that sent a strange thrill through me, to think what good had indirectly resulted from my misfortune. Reaching the rocks mentioned above, I clambered on to them and began my search for limpets. Once more fate was kind to me. The stones abounded with the mollusks, the majority of which were of larger sizes than I had met with in my life before. In considerably less than five minutes, I had detached a larger supply than our little party would be able to consume all day. My harvest gathered, I filled my handkerchief, and set off for the plateau again. About halfway, I looked up to find Miss Maybourne standing at the cave mouth watching me. Directly she saw me approaching, she waved her hand to encourage me and that little gesture set my heart beating like a wheat flail. It was the first dawning of a knowledge that was soon to give me the greatest pain I had ever known in my life. On reaching the plateau, I hastened towards her and placed my spoils at her feet. Fortune is indeed kind to us, I said. See what splendid limpets I obtained from the rocks down yonder. I was beginning to be afraid lest there should be nothing edible on the island. How are we to cook them, she answered, with a little shudder. I must confess that things did not look appetising. I could not eat them raw. I have no intention that you shall, I cried, reassuring me. I'm going to light a fire and cook them for you. How can you light a fire? Have you any matches dry enough? I took from my waistcoat pocket a little Japanese matchbox, the lid of which closed with a strong spring, and opened it in some trepidation. So much depended on the discovery I was about to make. With a trembling hand, I pressed back the lid and tipped the contents into my palm. Fortunately, the strength of the spring and the tight fit of the cover rendered the box almost watertight. And for this reason, the little dozen or so matches it contained were only a little damp. In their present state, however, they were quite useless. I think, I said, turning them over and examining them closely, that if I place them in a dry spot, they will soon be fit for use. 
Let me do it for you, she said, holding out her hand. You've done everything so far. Why should I not be allowed to help you? I shall only be too glad to let you, I answered. I want to cut the fish out of their shells and prepare them for the fire. So saying, I handed over the precious matches to her care, and then taking my clasp knife from my pocket, set about my work. When it was finished, I had prepared an ample meal for three people, placed it in a safe place in the cave, and set about collecting a supply of fuel for the fire. When this work was done, I determined to climb to a point of vantage and search the offing for a sail. Just as I was starting, however, Miss Maybourne called me to know where I was going. I informed her of my errand, and she immediately asked permission to accompany me. I told her that I should be very glad of her company, and when she had looked into the cave of the little child, who was still fast asleep, we set off together. From the encampment we climbed the hillside for a hundred feet or so, and then reaching another small plateau, turned our attention to the sea. Side by side we looked across the expanse of blue water, for the sail that was to bring deliverance to us, but no sign of any vessel could be seen, only a flock of seagulls screeching round the rocks below us, and another wheeling about in the blue sky above our heads. Nothing there, I said bitterly, not a single sail of any kind. A fit of anger, as sudden as the small squall that ruffles the surface of a mountain lake, rose in my breast against fate. I shook my fist fiercely at the plain water, softly heaving in the sunlight, and but for my companion's presence would have cursed our fate aloud. I suppose Miss Mabel must have understood, for she came a little closer to me and laid her hand soothingly upon my arm. Mr. Rexford, she said, surely you have hitherto been so brave I'm not going to give way now, just because we cannot see a ship the first time we look for one. No, no, I know you too well, and I cannot believe that. You shame me, Miss Mabel, I replied, recovering myself directly. Upon my word, you do. I don't know what made me give way like that. I'm worse than a baby. I won't have you call yourself names either. It was because you were tired and a little run down, she answered. You've done so much. Oh, Mr. Rexford... I want you to grant me a favour. I want you to kneel with me while I thank God for his great mercy in sparing our lives. We owe everything to him. Without his help, where should we be now? I will kneel with you with pleasure, I said, if you wish it, but I am not worthy. I have been too great a sinner for God to listen to me. Shush, I cannot let you say that, she went on. Whatever your past may have been, God will hear you and forgive you if you pray aright. Remember, too, that in my eyes you have atoned for all your past by your care of us last night. Come, let us kneel down here. So saying, she dropped onto her knees on that little plateau. Without a second's hesitation, I followed her example. It must have been a strange sight for the gulls, that lovely girl and myself, kneeling side by side on that windy hillside. Overhead rose the rugged peak of the mountain, and below us was the surf-bound beach, and on all sides the treacherous sea from which we had so lately been delivered. What were the exact words of the prayer Miss Maybourne sent up to the throne of grace, I cannot now remember. I only know that it seemed to me the most beautiful expression of thankfulness for the past and supplication for guidance and help for the future, that it would be possible for a human being to give utterance to. When she had finished, we rose, and having given a final glance round, went down the hill again. On reaching our camping place, she went into the cave to ascertain how little Esther was. 
while I sought the spot where she had set the matches to dry. To my delight, they were now ready for use. So placing them back in my box as if they were the greatest treasures I possessed on earth, as they really were just then, I went across to the fire I'd built up. In striking one of the matches upon a stone, I lit the grass beneath the sticks, and in less time than it takes to tell, had the satisfaction of seeing a fine bonfire blazing before me. This done, I crossed to the cave and obtained the fish I had placed there. On entering, I discovered Miss Mabel kneeling beside the child. How is she now? I inquired, surprised at discovering the poor little mite still asleep upon the bed of grass. She's unconscious again, answered Miss Mabel, in large tears, standing in her beautiful eyes as she spoke. Oh, Mr. Retford, what can we do to save her life? Alas, I cannot tell, I replied. Shall we give her some more brandy? I still have a little bit left in the flask. And we might try it, she said, but I fear it will not be much use. What the poor little thing needs most is a doctor's science and proper nursing. Oh, if only I knew what is really the matter, I might be able to do something for her. But as it is, I feel powerless to help her at all. At any rate, let us try the effect of a few sips of this, I said, and took the flask from my pocket. Even if it does no good, it cannot possibly do any harm. Having knelt beside her and having opened the little child's mouth, I poured into it a few drops of a precious spirit. We then got to work and chafed her hands as briskly as possible, and in a few minutes were rewarded by seeing the mite open her eyes and look about her. Thank God, said Miss Maybourne devoutly. Oh, Esther, darling, do you know me? Do you remember Aggie? To show that she understood what was said to her, the little one extended her hand and placed it in that of her friend. The action was so full of trust and confidence that it brought the tears to my eyes. How do you feel now, darling? asked her friend, as she lifted the little sufferer into a more comfortable position. Pain here, faltered Esther, placing her hand on the side of her head. And looking round the cave as in search of someone, she said, Miss Maybourne, where is mother? At this point my pluck forsook me altogether. Seizing the fish in which I had come, I dashed from the cave without waiting to hear what the answer the brave girl would give her. When she joined me ten minutes later, large tears were running down her cheeks. She had made no attempt to hide them from me, but came across to where I knelt by the fire and said, in a choking voice, I have been preparing that poor child for the sad news she must soon hear, and I cannot tell you how miserable it has made me. Do you really think in your own heart that we are the only people who escaped from that ill-fated vessel? Isn't it just possible that some other boat may have been lowered and that the child's mother may be among those who got away in her? Tell me exactly what you think without hiding anything from me, I implore you. Of course, it may just be possible, as you say, that the boat did get away, but I must confess that I think it most unlikely. Had such a thing occurred, we should have been almost certain to have seen her. And in that case, we should have been able to attract her attention, and she would have picked us up. No, Miss Maybourne, I wish I could comfort you with such an assurance. But I fear it would be cruel to bore you up with any false hopes, only to have them more cruelly shattered later on. I'm afraid we must accustom ourselves to the awful thought that the Fiji princess and all her company, with the exception of ourselves, have met a watery grave. Why I should have been saved when so many worthier people perished, I cannot imagine. To save us, Mr. Rexford, she answered. Think what you are saying, and remember that but for you we should not be here now. 
I thank God then for the opportunity he offered me, I answered. And what I said, I meant it from the very bottom of my heart. Whatever she may have thought of my speech, she vouchsafed no reply to it. But on looking up a moment later, I discovered that her face was suffused with a beautiful blush and was more eloquent than any words. After that, I turned my attention to the meal which I was preparing and gave her time to recover herself a little. Having no pot into which to cook the fish, I had to use the largest of the shells I had discovered. These did not prove altogether a good substitute, but as they were all I had got, I had to make the best of them or go without. When the mussels were sufficiently done, I lifted them off the fire and invited my companion to taste the dish. She did so, and the grimace which followed told me that she was not over-pleased at the result. I followed her example and felt obliged to confess that they made but poor fare to support life upon. If we cannot get something better, I don't know what we shall do, she cried. These things are too horrible. Perhaps I may be able to hit upon a way of catching some fish, I said. Or it is just possible I may be able to get a trap and catch some birds. There is no knowing what I may not be able to do with a little practice. In the meantime, you must endeavour to swallow as much of this mess as possible and try to get the little one in the cave there to do the same. Putting some of the fish into another shell, I gave it to her, and she carried it off to her sick friend. After I had scraped and washed it carefully, I filled a larger shell with pure water from the pool and gave it to them to drink. When they had finished their meal, and it was not much that they ate, I called Miss Maybourne outside and informed her that I was going to build up a large fire, after which I should set off on a tramp round the island see if I could discover anything better to eat. While I was away, I advised her to dry her own and the child's things by the blaze. For though we had been some time under the influence of the hot sun, still our garments could not be said to be anything like dry. She promised to do as I wished, and when I had piled what remained of my heap of fuel upon the fire, I made my way down to the shore and then set off for a tramp around the island. My first call was at the group of rocks from which I had gathered the shellfish of which my companion had so strongly disapproved. I wanted to see if I could discover a place where it would be possible for me to construct some sort of a trap for fish. But though I searched diligently, nothing suitable could I find. At last I had to give up in despair and set my brain to work on another plan for stocking my larder. That fish were plentiful, I could see by looking over the edges of the rocks how was I to capture them was by no means so plain. I think at that moment I would have given a year of my life for the worst hook and line I had used as a boy among the sticklebacks of Polton Penner. Leaving the rocks behind me, I turned to the point and made for the brow of a low hill that overlooked the sea on the further side. I had noticed that the seabirds gathered here in greater numbers than elsewhere, and when I reached the cliff, to my surprise and delight, I found the ground literally covered with nests. Indeed, it was a matter of some difficulty to move without treading upon the eggs. My delight can scarcely be overestimated, for here was a new food supply, and one that, while it would be unlikely to give out for some weeks to come, would be infinitely preferable to the wretched limpets upon which we had almost made up our minds we should have to subsist. I hastened to fill my handkerchief and pockets with the spoil, and when I could stuff in no more, continued my walk in a much easier and consequently more thankful frame of mind. As I tramped along, glancing over and anon at the sea, 
the sordid details of my past life rose before me when i considered it i felt almost staggered by the change that had come over me it seemed scarcely possible that so short a time could have passed since i had plotted against bartrand and had been so miserable in london in my present state of usefulness i felt as if centuries had elapsed since then instead of barely a couple of weeks as was really the case i wonder what would be said in england when the news got into the papers i suppose it inevitably must that i had found a watery grave on the ill-fated fiji princess would there be anyone to regret me i very much doubted it one hope occurred to me perhaps under the cover of the supposition that i was dead i might manage to outwit the law after all and then an opportunity would be afforded me of beginning a new life in a strange land the land was the home of agnes maybourne from a consideration of this important chance i fell into thinking of the girl herself could it be for that reason i was ultimately to save a life that fate had raised her face before my eyes to warn me that miserable night in london it looked very much like it however that was the beginning what was the sequel to be surely it could not be intended that fate having brought me so far should suddenly abandon me at the end oh if i were only clean-handed like my fellow-men i cried in miserable self-abasement how happy might i not be for i must mention here that in my own mind i had quite come to the conclusion that agnes maybourne entertained a liking for me and god knows i on my side have discovered that i loved her better than my own soul what was to be the end of it all that the future alone could decide the other side of the island that is to say the side exactly opposite that upon which we had landed was almost precipitous and at the foot of the cliffs extended for some distance out into the sea were a number of small islets upon which the seas broke with never-ceasing violence i searched that offing as i had done the other for a sail but was no better rewarded as soon as i had made certain there was nothing in sight i turned upon my tracks and hastened back to the plateau as fast as i could go for some reason or another i experienced a great dread lest by any chance something ill might have befallen my charges but when i reached the beach below the plateau and looked up to see the fire still burning brightly and miss maybourne moving about between it and the cave i was reassured the tide by this time had gone out and the lifeboat lay high and dry upon the beach before rejoining my companions i made my way towards her to roll her over into a proper position was only a matter of small difficulty now that the water was out of her and once this was accomplished i was able to satisfy myself as to her condition as far as i could gather there was nothing amiss with her even her oars lay fastened to the thwarts as usual how she could have got into the water was a mystery i could not solve for the life of me i examined her most carefully having done so found some pieces of wood to act as rollers and dragged her up the beach till i had got her well above the high tide water mark after that i picked up my parcel of eggs and climbed the hill to the plateau it was now well on into the afternoon and i still had much to do before nightfall when i showed miss maybourne the eggs i had found she expressed her great satisfaction and we immediately cooked a couple to be ready against the little sufferers waking the rest of the afternoon was spent in carrying driftwood from the beach to the plateau where i determined to keep a good flare burning all night in case any ships might happen to pass 
and think it worth their while to stand off till daylight should show them the reason of it. When I had stacked it ready to my hand, there was yet another supply of grass to be cut, from which to improve the bed places in the caves. Then my own couch had to be prepared somewhere within call, after which there was the one evening meal to cook. By the time this was done, darkness had fallen, and our first night on the island had commenced. When I bade Miss Maybourne good night, she was kind enough to express her thanks a second time for the trouble I had taken. As if the better to give point her gratitude, she held out her hand to me. I took it and raised it to my lips. She did not attempt to stop me, and then with another good night she passed into the cave and I was left alone. For hours I sat watching my blaze and listening to the rumbling of the surf upon the shore. The night was as still as the night could well be, not even a breath of wind was stirring. When I laid myself down in my corner between the rocks near the cave's mouth and fell asleep, it was to dream of Agnes Maybourne and the happiness that might have been mine but for the one dread thing which made it quite impossible. End of chapter 6